if one of the big problems that I experienced was sort of secrecy and shame and guilt, the best way to get rid of that is to be as out and as public as possible about the fact that there are lots of people that are going through this and you don't have to be alone in it. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Best-selling Vermont author Jessica Leahy is done with keeping secrets. In her new book, The Addiction Inoculation, she reveals her best-kept secret, that she is an alcoholic. The story begins before she takes her first sip of wine, when she becomes aware that alcoholism runs in her family. Acutely conscious of this fact, she takes extra precautions to stay away from alcohol as a young adult. As a student at UMass Amherst, she becomes a drug and alcohol peer counselor, teaching her classmates about the perils of addiction. And then, after she has kids in her 30s, she begins drinking wine and is soon drinking a bottle a day and then more. Finally, when she blacks out drunk at a family birthday party, her father confronts her about her alcoholism and she seeks treatment. The Addiction Inoculation is Jessica Leahy's effort to teach parents how they can inoculate their children from substance abuse. Leahy is a former teacher and author of the 2015 best-selling parenting guide, The Gift of Failure. Jessica Leahy, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So in your new book, you had me at your opening sentence, Hi, my name is Jess and I'm an alcoholic. Why did you decide to announce this to the world? Because, uh, well, I got sober in 2013 and I was scared to death. I was a teacher at the time. I taught middle school and I was petrified that I'd get fired. I was petrified that the parents of my students would find out. Um, I came out I wrote an article that was anonymous that ran in the Huffington Post about coming out to my children But I didn't sign that. Obviously, I had a pseudonym. So by the time it was time to write this book, I had found out, I I do a lot of speaking, and I'd found out that every time I mention on stage that I'm in recovery, I get just an avalanche of emails and people who want to reach out and say they've been scared or they're worried or they've never talked to anyone about this. So I realized the more I talk about it, the more it emboldens other people to talk about it and right now, for better or for worse, it appears that's my job is, you know, if one of the big problems that I experienced was sort of secrecy and shame and guilt, um, the best way to get rid of that is to be as out and as public as possible about the fact that um, there are lots of people that are going through this and you don't have to be alone in it. Why did you drink? Talk up a little bit about the evolution of going from a peer drug and alcohol counselor at yeah. UMass to uh, being an alcoholic and now to being a, in recovery. Mm-hmm. Well, I was raised by uh, an alcoholic and I was scared to death of becoming like that person. So I, I stayed as far away as possible. I mean, I, I had a few drinks here and there when I was young and drank a tiny bit in college, but I could probably count on one hand the number of times I was drunk as a young adult. Um, and it, I wish I had a better answer, but it really just snuck up on me. It was like I let my defenses down and all of a sudden there I was drinking a bottle of wine a day and protecting my right to drink and and keeping extra wine around just in case there wasn't enough or so it made me feel better that, you know, there would be enough for me. And, and it just happened so slowly. It was like I turned around and there it was. And I had a drinking problem for a good 
a good 10 years before, um, you know, things really came to a head. But by the time um, my dad intervened on me and sort of faced me down about it, um, I, I didn't, I was so ready. I was so done. I was so exhausted. I was so scared that it was time for me. But uh, I really think I drank to manage my anxiety is the short answer for that um, anxiety. And it became a habit. And suddenly there it was, it had it hooks, its hooks in me. So your father appears as bookends on this story. He really you does. Yeah. Mention him as that he was an alcoholic, and then you mention that he was the one who called you out on it. Sort he of. actually, he's actually not an alcoholic. He is not. He was raised by an alcoholic, though. Um, and so when he says, when he said to me, "I know what an alcoholic looks like," and you are an alcoholic, he was referring to his parents who had been an alcoholic. So, yeah, he knew very clearly what that looked like, and he needed to intervene on me and it was the right thing to do. So did your dad drink at all? Not really. Um, well, I mean, socially, but no, he, he doesn't have a problem with alcohol at all. So, but he did drink, you know, here and there. So that's a little uh, different than the usual story we hear of the mm -hmm. sort of continuous experience of growing up in a household where alcohol is flowing. You didn't actually have that. Yeah, well, see, now you're making me have to get specific because then I usually don't talk about this. I talk about the fact that I have a parent who is an alcoholic. Uh, I don't normally name that parent, but you, by process of elimination, have come back around to the fact that I do have a parent who is an alcoholic, and that is just not my dad. <laughs> did you, when did you realize that your mom had a drinking problem? I was really young. I was really young. Um, and my sister and I both sort of sensed something was up, but we weren't really allowed to talk about it. It wasn't something that um, it wasn't really something that we were allowed to do um, because it was just uncomfortable <laughs> for everybody. So. So when your dad tells you, I know what an alcoholic looks like mm -hmm. and you're an alcoholic, what did he see? What was going on? Who was Jess Leahy at that moment? Oh, it was bad the night before. So you have to understand this, this more, this reckoning came the morning after a, my mom's birthday party. And we had lots of friends from out of town. We had my oldest friend, one of my dearest, dearest friends that I've known since I was three was there. Uh, and I blacked out the night before. And I don't remember what happened for better. I, you know, I, I, I say for better, for worse. I, I think it's probably best that I don't remember because the humiliation would just be horrible, but it's almost worse not knowing exactly what went down. I hear it was pretty bad though. So I have no idea what happened, but I was very drunk. And my dad came in the next morning, confronted me. I said, you're absolutely right. I'm going to go to a meeting, find a meeting. And I went in the bathroom and threw up and went to a meeting that night. Hmm. Talk a little bit about this hereditary web of alcoholism that you found yourself caught in? So when you, we talk about what the role genetics plays in substance use disorder, it looks like, according to Mark Shook at, at the University of Southern California, it looks like the best data we have is that it's somewhere between 50 to 60% of the risk picture. So there's this horrible analogy that I hate and love at the same time, which is that um, genetics are the bullet that goes into the gun 
and trauma is the trigger. So for people who have a genetic, so for example, my husband has lots and lots of substance use disorder on his side of the family as well, both maternal and paternal side, but he drinks like a normal person. So he just, that didn't express in him. So there's, um, you know, your childhood, uh, adverse childhood experiences, trauma, this thing called epigenetics, which is like the intersection of genetics and uh, environment, and then all kinds of other risk factors like um, uh, academic failure, social ostracism, um, a child-on-child aggression, undiagnosed learning issues. All of these things can play a part in whether or not those genetics either express or don't express. And my sister is a normal drinker. My sister can take it or leave it. She cares less about it. So, you know, she managed to not have that issue, but, um, you know, her daughters are still at higher risk. My children are still at higher risk. Those genes live on in us and whether or not uh, they express sometimes is a matter of luck. And sometimes it's a matter of uh, trauma that happens in childhood. So the title of your book is really about that very issue about inoculating uh, your children, your family Mm -hmm. from this. How do you do that? How do you inoculate kids against addiction? Well, the word inoculation, obviously, I don't mean that literally, although there is research out there on trying to figure out ways to come up with some sort of something that will vaccinate us against substance abuse. The problem is, is that there's not, for example, there's not one gene that you can look to. There's not an easy like, oh, flick that gene out and suddenly we're fine. Inoculation in the title of my book comes from inoculation theory, which is based on, you know, regular old inoculation science, which is that when we are exposed to a killed off weaker version of the thing itself, we are going to be more likely to withstand it when we face the real thing. And when it comes to children and inoculation theory, what we're talking about is predicting some of the situations our kids might face, like someone coming to them and giving them a drink and saying, oh, it's no big deal. Everybody does it. If they know, if they have a rebuttal, if they know that that's actually not true, that here are the statistics on the number of kids that actually do do it. For example, if they're in eighth grade and someone says everybody does it and they happen to know that no, actually only 24% of eighth graders admit they've had a drink by the end of eighth grade, um, then that can inoculate them, that can help strengthen their resolve to actually say, no, thank you, I don't want to, or that they'll have scripts in their head about ways to refuse. The cool thing about inoculation theory is not only does it raise the likelihood that your children will will refuse that that high-risk behavior. And this could be drinking, this could be uh, sex before they're ready, this could be you know riding in a car with a drunk driver. Not only will it raise the chances that they will actually be able to withstand that, it also means that it generalizes. So um, inoculation theory generalizes. So if I inoculate my kids to respond to you know um, underage drinking or you know premature sex, it also generalizes to other risky behaviors, which is a really cool thing about inoculation theory. So we're talking theory, but you're a mm-hmm. mom of two kids. Uh, mm-hmm. What did this look like in the Leahy household? How did you, in a practical way, deal with your own kids? So that it's funny you should say that. I have a 22-year-old who's in college and here in Vermont, and I have a 17-year-old. And I am raising those two children now differently around substances than Um, And what's been interesting is the 17 year old feels this is unfair and that's totally fine because what I'm doing is saying, look, I raised your brother, your older brother with the best 
according to the best information I had, which, you know, I thought I was doing the best I could. And I learned something in researching this book. And the three years I spent researching this book, I learned some really important information. And what I learned is that if I have a consistent and clear message of no, not until it is legal for you, that you are not only more likely to or a lot less likely to have substance use disorder during your lifetime, I can protect your brain for longer, which is the sort of two issues we're talking about here, which is protecting the adolescent brain, which because substances have a very different impact on the adolescent brain than they do on adults' brains. And the longer we keep them from drinking or using drugs, the less likely they are to have substance use disorder during their lifetime. So I had sort of a more permissive attitude around my 22-year-old and my 17-year-old lives in a house where our answer is a blanket, absolutely not, not until it is legal for you to um, to have drugs and alcohol. So things have changed around here, but I'm modeling exactly what I want to see in them, right? Which is, huh, I thought I was doing the best I could based on the information I had at hand. And then I learned something and then I changed what I did based on the best evidence. And I don't feel guilt or shame or whatever about that. I'm just being the best person I can given the evidence I have at hand. So this idea of can't do it till it's legal, mm -hmm. um, there's nothing about, you know, legal is different in different no. states. Yeah. So yeah. how do you navigate that? There's a big difference between 18 and 21. Right. Right. So it actually, it turns out that what I'm talking about really has to do with adolescent brain development, with cognitive development in adolescence. The adolescent brain starting in puberty and ending in the early to mid twenties is in the most delicate and precarious state of growth and development, um, except for the only other time that's as delicate is from zero to two. So there are a lot of things that, a lot of substances that have relatively low risk in adults, but have um, both temporary and permanent um, effects on the adolescent brain. So, when we say legal, what I'm really talking about is just delay as long as possible. I mean, the ideal situation is that they don't start taking drugs or drinking until their brain is locked down and done developing, which means that their lower brain is hooked up to the sort of the prefrontal cortex, the upper brain, and that their, um, their hormone and neurotransmitter levels have leveled out. That doesn't happen until the early to mid 20s. So, but according to statistics, if we can just get them to 18, we lower their lifelong risk back down to about 10%, which is sort of where it is in the general population. So I'll feel much better once my kid is 18. I'll feel even better than that when he's 21. And really once he hits like 24, 25, I can, you know, their brains are sort of solidified. They're, they're in their adult state and I'll heave a big sigh of relief. So what's different between what you're saying and uh, abstinence uh, thinking, you know, that when it comes mm -hmm. to sex or drugs or the just mm -hmm. say no uh, mantra of, you know, uh, famously coined by Nancy Reagan. Right. All of these things have been panned. Uh, mm -hmm. But yep. it sounds like you're not so critical of them. Well, no, I am. I am critical of just say no. I am critical of you just won't have sex until, you know, those sort of messages of just because or because I'm the authority figure, this is what I'm going to say, or because... Uh, the Bible said, or because the law says, I am not, when I say until it's legal, I'm, I actually, I am a fan of legalization. I think drugs should be legalized. This is not about some big law handed down. This is about giving kids information about what's happening in their brains and what 
using drugs and alcohol does to their lifelong risk. And so I come at that with a from a place of real transparency. So for example, they know a lot about my substance use because I'm out here talking about it all the time, but they also know about my husband and my husband, you know, I joke about the fact that my, we talk a lot about the fact that my husband had a year where he was pretty dissatisfied with his life when he was a young adult, um, smoked a lot of pot and actually smoking all that pot not only didn't help him with this dissatisfaction, it actually, he was really making it so that he couldn't move forward from that place. And the place that he needed to be when he came out was he needed as much <laughs> short-term memory as possible. And he had done some damage to his short-term memory coming out of that. He was in his early, early twenties. And, you know, having these very real conversations about, this is not about a blanket. You just can't do these things because we said, so here's why. Here's what's happening in your brain. Here's what the statistics say. Here's why it's so important for you to preserve as much of this time while your brain is developing free from substances in order for your brain to get to a place where it is as healthy and you have as much potential as possible going on with your brain. I think a lot of the abstinence only and, and just say no campaigns are about it's the law. So you can't do it. You know, that's not at all what I'm talking about. I'm talking about evidence-based information, data, giving kids information, arming them with information and inoculation theory in order to protect themselves for the sake of protecting themselves. What's your view of cannabis legalization? Uh, my view on it is that it should be legal. I mean, I think alcohol is a, you know, alcohol is a much more damaging product than Cannabis, it kills more people. And yes, I know it's used by more people than cannabis is. So we're talking about apples and oranges in a way, but um, alcohol is a much more dangerous detox. Alcohol is, you know, it kills a lot more people. It influences people in ways that um, cannabis just doesn't in terms of, anyway. So from my perspective, cannabis should have been legal a long time ago. Um, I think it's going to be where when it comes to adolescence, though, we do see a novelty bump in states that have legalization. I think in, in a perfect world for me, a lot of the taxing that's done of cannabis really needs to be directed at prevention measures, at uh, preventing kids from starting using uh, substances before their brains are ready, uh, before their brains are developed. So, you know, I've always been on the side of, of legalizing. And, you know, when it comes to psychedelic use, I'm on the side of legalizing that. I think that there's there are a lot of substances that are more dangerous than others. But also we we're talking about a situation in which lots and lots of people can use these substances and have no addiction or, you know, dependence issues whatsoever. Um, I don't happen to be one of those people. So I'm not going to say that, you know, it would be fine for me to go out and use cannabis because I already use, you know, whatever the, the drug is, because I can't, <laughs> I can't, I'm not part of the population that, that um, can use that responsibly. You still, you write about how you still go to 12-step meetings. Um, mm -hmm. What do you get out of them? You know, one of the, there's a saying um, that I think is really apt, which is, you know, that the opposite of addiction is connection. And I write in the book how, about how alcohol actually has helped us connect as a as a civilization over, you know, whether that's um, in the very, very early days of American civilization, or that was when, you know, uh, the American revolution was sort of fomenting. And, and a lot of the discussion about that happened in taverns. Alcohol can really help us connect when it's used in a way that has to 
that's about celebration and, and, you know, enjoying each other. And that's not how I was using it. Alcohol took me to a very, very lonely place where I tell my husband everything. And I could not tell him about this because it, I was so ashamed and I was so scared. And so I was in a place of deep, deep isolation and fear and shame. And what, 12-step meetings have given me is a place to talk about it with other people who understand exactly what I mean. There's a fantastic scene at the end of, um, well, there's two, Stephen King has written a lot about substance abuse um, and his own addictions, but in um, in his book, uh, Dr. Sleep, he writes about this character, which is the, the sequel to The Shining. He talks about this character who has done some particularly, to him anyway, really shameful things, things that stories he can't tell. And it wasn't until a couple of years into his recovery, he finally felt like, okay, I can tell this story. And he tells the story and it's just, he explodes, a, you know, ex expects like a bomb to go off. Like everyone's going to walk out and say, well, that's it. You're a disgusting human being. And instead everyone kind of looks around and like, okay, now let's do the secretary's report. You know, he's told this thing that is so deeply shameful to him. And that's sort of shame and guilt and, and fear is what keeps us from being able to get better and being able to connect with other people. And so for me, um, you know, as, as a non-church going person, my higher power in recovery has been those other people, those, whether that's the people at my recovery groups or my students in the drug and alcohol rehab, where I taught for five years, those kids look to me to be a model of recovery and to be a person who's in recovery that they can trust and a person who can be reliable and be for there for them in recovery. So if nothing else, it was those kids that kept me sober for five straight years. So it's, it's meant to, and it's not the way for everyone. It really, you know, recovery 12 step meetings, maybe that's not the way for everyone, but for me, it saved my life. So you both with your own experience and the experience you've had working with young people who have substance use disorder, you have become a keen observer of the people around you, of the people around your kids. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is, speaks to every parent's fear. You know, who is my mm -hmm. kid hanging with? Mm -hmm. So what are some red flags for you as you survey the landscape that your own <laughs> kids na are navigating? Um, where does your eye land with concern? You know, there's hardly anything like when I look out there, I, you know, I still have concern about the way substances, especially alcohol is marketed to kids. And I talk about that in the book and, and marketing that's something I'm particularly dedicated to. Um, I found just, for example, just six months ago, found out that there was a toy that was being sold on Amazon and walmart.com, which was essentially like um, happy hour for Barbies. Essentially, it wasn't Barbie, but it was, you know, a, a knockoff kind of thing. And uh, I got those removed from, I put some pressure on them from social media and they were removed from both Walmart and from Amazon. And, and that was really important to me. Um, the messages we send kids about why we drink, you know, if we're sending messages about, you know, man, uh, I just, it, I've got this family thing coming up and I, I've got to make sure that I just have a few drinks before I walk into that, because that's the only way I can cope with it. That kind of messaging is really worrisome to me, the messaging of self-medication. But really, everything else is just a starting place for a conversation. I mean, everything else from, you know, that relative of theirs that got too drunk at that Thanksgiving thing or this problematic message I'm seeing on television right now about how, you know, this person is 
um, high all the time and yet also super productive all the time. And, you know, is that accurate? They're just, there are lots of media that comes into our house over various transoms. And I, that's all a good starting place for conversation. And that's how I treat it. You know, let's talk about that thing. It's confusing. So let's talk about it. How do you know, you know, your dad did you the favor of telling yeah. you that he saw yeah. a problem. How do you know whether to, you know, whether it's your own kid, a friend, mm -hmm. of your kid, a relative, uh, or your own friend? Um, that's a big bombshell to drop yeah. on somebody that their perception of themselves is not right. Mm -hmm. So when do you do that? You know, I think I have a little bit of practice at this as a teacher because I'm often having to help parents understand a more complete picture of their kids. So that's I do have some practice from that angle, but I use this analogy of a puzzle. Let's say let's say let's say for giggles that substance abuse is a hundred a hundred piece puzzle. We can't get to piece one hundred unless pieces through one through ninety nine. Are in place, right? So I may speak to someone about the fact that I'm worried that they have an issue. And I've had to do this with lots and lots of people. And often I get rebuffed. Often I, someone says, oh no, it's not an issue for me. Or someone gets angry and cuts me out of their life for a while. That's happened too. Um, very, very rarely are you the 100th piece, but you can be. And if those other 99 pieces are in place, it's going to be a lot more likely that that 100th piece will land and the whole picture will become apparent. Because when my dad told me that I was an alcoholic, it wasn't like he was the first one to say that to me. It was just the, it was just, he was the 100th piece for me. So I feel a real responsibility to be piece two or piece 54 or piece 87 so that that 100th can land eventually. And, um, and, you know, I do that for my friends. I, you know, if my friends are being jerks about something, we talk to each other. You know, I think that's a part of being able to hear. I think people need to be able to hear feedback about themselves if they're, if they're uh, putting other people's safety, security, comfort level at risk. You know, I think that's really important. So I think, you know, yes, it is a big, a big deal. And yes, I've had people, I've had people not speak to me for a little while because of, my, as it turns out, correct. <laughs> and the two times that it's happened um, was with a friend of ours that um, ended up in jail for his heroin use. And um, for my parents that I, you know, I, there were periods of time where that parent wouldn't talk to me because I had brought it up. But in the end, I was right. And eventually the 100th uh, piece came for both of those people and they're both sober now. So I'm glad, you know, in retrospect, I'm glad. You've tried a lot of different approaches with your own family and with people and, and just communicating to people how to address these issues. What do you feel is the biggest mistake you've made in doing this? And what do you feel has been your biggest success in trying to raise these issues and help people to deal with, you know, substance abuse? Both with this book and with The Gift of Failure, you know, The Gift of Failure sold really well. And I got to do a lot of speaking events about that. And so my and there are a lot of things that are really difficult for me to convey um, about what it means to love the kids you have and not some imaginary kid you wish you had. And that can be a really difficult message to to give to people. And so I've had to learn how to listen, how to understand the 
my husband is really good at this. He's actually been a really great teacher for me around this, helping people hear you in a way that will help them, not that will make me feel better is really, really important. Um, uh, when I need to really reach someone, I have to reach them where they are and not necessarily in a way that is convenient or easy for me. And that's been, that's taken me a long time to learn. And it, it, it's true of both the gift of failure messages and of the addiction inoculation messages. And as much as I would like to just go out there and fix childhood substance abuse, you know, it's a multifactorial problem. There's lots of gray air, gray areas, but I, by embracing the gray areas, by embracing the uncertainty and letting people know that I have a lot of answers, but I don't necessarily have the answers they're going to need in this moment. And I can just give you the best, give them the best information best on the, based on the best evidence that I have at hand. That's, you know, the most loving thing and, and generous thing that I can do for them. So understanding my limitations and being able to meet people where they are, I think has been a, a huge learning curve for me as someone who lives a fairly public life about this information and helping. Well, Jessica Leahy, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Oh my goodness. Thank you for having me. It means a lot to me. Jessica Leahy is the author of The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. 